Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Because of the NAFTA negotiations. You know, this just, again, puts the lie to the idiocy that we heard announced earlier in the week about what the priorities were for the government. Remember, they're talking about gender equity and environmental and labor standards, getting climate change written into the agreement. And what emerges as the number one issue is don't do anything that's going to impact our auto industry. This has been the mystery to me about how it is this government can get away with talking out of both sides of its mouth. (laughs) On the one hand, waxing eloquent about how vital it is to achieve the Paris targets by 2050, even suggesting they'll be at some point in the near future, and we've even heard them put dates on it, where we're not going to have fossil fuels at all. And then on the other hand, saying, yeah, but don't mess with the auto sector because that is where we get the majority of our votes in Ontario. That, that is why I think the, the liberal message on climate change and global warming has, has very little... Uh, very little resonance with those of of us in Alberta because it seems to me they kind of pick and choose what kind of carbon emissions they they value versus those they don't value on the basis of the kind of votes that they're going to get. So anyway, that that is just one thing that occurs to me in putting into context Christian Freeland's arguments earlier in the week about what she said her priorities were. That was a bit of smoke and mirrors. Now we're beginning to see brass tacks at the table what the real priorities are. So we're going to talk about, about autos. We're going to talk as well about this really interesting... Um, consortium that seems to be forming among our agricultural industries in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico saying, hey, you know what? Don't break something that's working. Do no harm on this area. So we'll see what what, uh, that might look like as well as we go through negotiations. Sarah Goldfeeder is my guest. She's a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and principal with Earnscliffe Strategy Group and she joins me now. Sarah, thanks so much for being with me. Anytime. Thanks for having me. So talk about autos for a minute, because it's funny, in all of the things that they had put on the table, the U.S. as their priorities, it didn't strike me that they were going to be leading with the auto sector. So so tell us why this was, was day one, the most important issue. So for a while now, um, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross has made it his mission to increase the amount of especially um, U.S. content in North American automobiles. And they've targeted the Rust Belt throughout the campaign, throughout the initial months. Uh, You'll recall the trip to to Wisconsin. Well, this is all part of that, the same kind of agricultural slash manufacturing base that that, – elected Trump. It's his base in, in many ways. So I think that's a, a large part of it is uh, the manufacturing sector and, um, and and frankly the unions have been working alongside um, Secretary Ross to come up with an argument for increased uh, rules of origin um, numbers for automobiles. So that's, that's the crux of it. Um, and I think 
and I think there's a number of different ways to manage it. And the auto industry itself is not a huge fan of of the stuff that Wilbur Ross has kind of concocted and put into uh, the trade negotiations with um, with Bob Lighthizer and John Melly. And I think you saw some of that come out in the last couple of days. But also, I think you know there's a large discussion there that you know if you increase the amount of of content. Um, with that you know or or if you increase the number of of different pieces that come in from third countries that are that are not included within that number and so you have to actually pay um tariffs on that inf- on on those pieces that a lot of the automakers are saying at this point you decrease the competitiveness of the of the North American vehicles versus the Korean and the Japanese vehicles that come into North America. Well, not to be indelicate because that's was was what occurred to me. Is this a problem with NAFTA or is this a problem with American vehicles? vehicles being less desirable from an energy efficiency point of view than some of the competitors that are being produced by Toyota and Mazda and others. That's that. Uh, where is the real problem in the hollowing out of, of the manufacturing sector on this front? Amy, where are the jobs going? <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, is, is Canada really to blame because uh, we have more parts or is Mexico really no, to blame? Or is Mexico it, is to blame. I mean, it, the, the blame is, is being laid on Mexico. But is that true or should the blame be made on Toyota because they're able to produce a car that more people want to buy? Um, I mean, there's, there's an argument for, for that, but at the end of the day, what you have seen is that a lot of the, the large North American automakers have moved a number of jobs out of Canada and the United States, and they have moved into Mexico because it is a lower-cost economy to to manufacture in. And, and one of the interesting things that all three groups have talked about, Mexico, Canada, and the United States, is, is and they haven't used the same language on this, which is important, because there's no way a Trump administration would talk about a progressive um, progressive labor reforms or progressive trade policy, but that's exactly what they are actually talking about: is is lifting up Mexican workers so that there is less of a disparity between the costs of having a person work in Mexico versus a person in the United States versus a person working in Canada on in a manufacturing plant. And once that field is truly level, then the belief is that more of those jobs will come back into the United States, and that is the U.S. goal at the end of the day. I'm trying to understand if that can be done through a trade agreement. Can you mandate, okay, Mexico, you've got to pay this, the workers working in an auto parts factory the same as we're paying them in Michigan? Can, can you? I've never heard of trade language being written that way. Is, is, can, can you even do that? Uh, I, mandating a minimum wage? Probably not. But there are a lot of, so it, you know, in, the, in NAFTA right now, there's side agreements on labor and environment, and um, those two side agreements at the moment don't have very strong enforcement mechanisms. And so we can all sit down and agree, yes, we're all going to you know, uphold the same basis of you know, environmental protections when we open up manufacturing plants, when we extract natural resources, et cetera, but there is no enforcement mechanism. So nobody can say, you know, oh, look, they're doing this at a much lower price because they're not worried about enforcing these regulations, but our government has made us do it in a certain way in order to pr- protect the environment, and so that's creating an unfair trade barrier. And so, so these side agreements on, and, they, and it's the same thing on labor, where there's no real mechanism, there's no enforcement mechanism right now that's, that's robust enough for us to say, for the Americans and Canadians to say to, um, to a company, well, sure, you've moved those jobs down to Mexico, but are, do they have the same standards of safety within their factories? Are you paying them a living wage? Are you presenting them with, you know, options that would be considered, you know, a middle-class um, lifestyle? 
in wherever it is that you're building that versus what we do here in, you know, southwest Ontario or Michigan or um, southeast of the United States. And so that, those levels of, um, you know, those areas where you can start to level the playing field, that's where those two um, side agreements are ineffective at the moment. And so um, all three countries have actually asked for those to be incorporated within the NAFTA agreement so that they could be subject to enforcement. I'm still uh, wondering how that'll work in practice because a living wage in Mexico is very different than a living wage in a very wealthy country and state that you might have that's producing cars. So there's the, the pricing of what you pay people is going to be related to the local cost of living. If it's cheaper to buy a house and cheaper to buy food, you're, you're going to be able to have a higher standard of living at a lower wage, which would still put Mexico and at, at an advantage. So I'm, I'm still trying to understand how that can work in practice, how those will be equalized in practice. Well, it, it's not going to be immediate. There's, there's no way it could be immediate. But I think the long-run goal, and if you think back even to the early 90s and you think about what Mexico, where Mexico was at economically when the original deal was negotiated, if you think about, you know, I mean, that was, it was a developing economy. It wasn't a developed economy, not like Canada, not like the United States. And so, um, you know, part of the goal of NAFTA was bringing this country that was our neighbor and on, you know, the, only, the third country on the continent, bringing it up and stabilizing it by creating an, a, a economic base that would basically enforce the rule of law, create civil society, and and in some ways it was successful, and in some ways there's a long way to go. And so I think this is one of those areas where there's still a lot of work left to do, um, but the goal would be, in the end of the day, creating a society in Mexico or enforcing a society in Mexico where they have the same level of expectation of having a a middle-class lifestyle, two cars in the the driveway, you know, a, a, a nice house that you know that's that's you know protects them from the elements, et cetera, and not thinking about um, some of the areas where you see some of the manufacturing centers where you know it's still in a, you know kind of an impoverished area. So there is a depressing of the wages. So you want to create an environment where the wages will actually increase to meet the market economy, and and that's how you build a middle class. Do you think, though, in the end, it's sort of funny, I had thought that we would see Mexico and Canada aligning in common areas of interest so that they would work together ensuring that this three-way partnership worked. This is almost Canada and the U.S. taking the same side against Mexico. And I'm, I'm just wondering if Mexico's path to what you're talking about is so far in the future that it's going to preclude a three-way agreement right now that we might end up with just bilateral agreements coming out of this. I don't think so because I think there, in so many ways, especially within the agriculture sector, when you look at when you look at what the Trump administration has to do with this agreement, they have to get Congress to buy in. And you look at how at where the pressure is coming from in Congress to get certain items on the table for this agreement, and it's coming from the agricultural states. And the agricultural states are still, in many ways, angry that that this president walked away from TPP because that would have been a huge boon to their export economy. And now they're in a position where they've lost market share to other countries in the world on agricultural exports. So it's really important to the agriculture states that that this deal not fall apart, and Mexico is part of that deal for them. Mexico is is a larger market 
for their agricultural exports than Canada in, in many sectors. Is the only agriculture issue that's going to be the sticking point is our supply management? Is everything else, do, do you see this simpatico between the three countries saying, hey, just don't mess with agriculture, things are working well, but, but supply management remains a flashpoint, or is there anything else that we should be watching on that front? I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know to what extent it gets translated as supply management up here in Canada. But when you talk to Americans about it, it's more access to the market, right? So, like the supply management system, I don't think they really care about it that much as long as they get enough of their product into Canada. And so, you may see kind of more of, of a quota, to, you know, that much like CETA, much like in TPP, um, and not so much a, you know, a, a demand to dismantle the supply management system. I think that's, that's probably not actually going to be part of it. But the other areas that are open are, you know, there's, there's a whole raft of, um, of issues in wine and beer. Um, there's, uh, there's issues with grain. Uh, there's uh, issues with... Um, beef and pork. There's issues with corn going south. There's issues with sugar. So like, there's a number of other commodities that, that are all going to come into play. So you saw that I was very skeptical of all the progressive values that Christopher Freeland put on the table earlier this week, saying that those were the priorities for, for NAFTA. Um, there was a couple that I just don't understand what it is they're trying to get at. And I wonder if you might be able to give us some, some context if it's becoming more clear. She put gender equity on the table. I, I don't know what it is that she would be looking for in a trade agreement to be able to, to meet that target and have that checked off the list. What, what kind of things are you, are you seeing just in these couple of days? Is there any indication of what it is that means? I haven't actually seen anything, but but what I can suppose is that they're talking about something much like, um, and, and I can't remember the name of it, but there's a there's an analysis, like a gender based analysis piece that they used for their budget that they might be they might try to incorporate that into an into an agreement. Um, I, I actually I don't see Mexico particularly wanting that. Um, that would be a hard, very hard for Mexico to comply with at this point in time, well, I think. Because they're also a very traditional and a very Catholic country. So I, I imagine they might just have a different family structure than we have here. And maybe that would be imposing something on, on them that they're not prepared to, to adopt. Well, I think they're just, not, they're just not as far along in their economy as the United States or Canada is. It's still more of a manufacturing-based economy. And you're right. It's it's still more of a male-centric environment. So it would be hard for them to enforce. And if there is an enforcement mechanism on you know on gender-based um, analysis, that would be difficult, I think, for, for for Mexico. And I don't know that it's something that the United States team would be awfully interested in either. Okay. Lynn, square the circle for me on the obsession with autos <laughs> and, oh, we've got to meet our chi- climate change goals. Because if they were saying, hey, we're going to do what France and Britain is doing and we're going to phase out combustion engines and now we've got to figure out how we're going to split up the pie with electric vehicles. Maybe I could see that being consistent, but electric vehicles have a whole lot fewer parts and it seems like it's the auto parts that are the issue here. And I'm just wondering if that's just posturing and they're kind of throwing it out the window when it comes when when it comes down to the, the meat and potatoes of negotiation. Well, and I think the other thing you have is you have three economies that are all heavily uh, reliant on natural resources and extractive industries, right? I mean, the, Canada is, the United States is, Mexico is. And so you're not going to... I, and when, it, when she talks about, you know, having environment standards, and I think there's an important distinction here between the environment standards that were included within the side agreement that was originally kind of negotiated post-NAFTA to get everybody to ratify it 
and, clim- and the climate change pieces that were you know, involved with Paris. If you separate out that, the first part and you talk about environmental standards, you start talking about regulations that make it um, you know, more important to ensure that you have a clean water supply and that you're not um, adding you know, toxins into the, in, into, the, into the subsoil or into the ground when you're actually manufacturing and that you're not using certain um, chemicals when you're, that, that may leach into the groundwater when you're engaged in agriculture. And so if you're talking about that kind of environmental protection and those regulations, there's an argument to be made that those regulations are more stringent in Canada and the U.S. than they are in Mexico, mm-hmm. and even in some ways in Canada than they are in the United States. And so if you're talking about aligning regulations that protect the environment within particular sectors, that is something that I think very much will be on the table. All right. Any other things that have come out in these first couple of days that we should be aware of? Um, no, I think it's. I, I think you have to remember that this is a negotiation. It's a bit of a poker game, and so you know those initial speeches that we saw yesterday um, are, are posturing and positioning, and that you know at the end of the day, I think what you'll find is that. The first three rounds of negotiations, so the one in U.S., one in Mexico, there'll be one in Canada, those will probably stay pretty tight to schedule, and we won't get a whole lot of information out of them. But then I think um, the, the train may come off the tracks a little bit, and you'll, you'll find um, the schedule starts to slow down. The, the breaks in between the rounds get longer, and, there, and more contentious issues start to bubble up to the top. Excellent. Look forward to getting an update from you again. I appreciate your analysis today. No problem. Thank you. You got it. That's Sarah Goldfeeder, who is fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, principal at Ernst Cliff Strategy Group. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.